Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Kaya, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth. I pay respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty never ceded. On this episode, I talk with the filmmakers behind one of the most anxiety-provoking films of the year, Bird Eater. Jack Clark and Jim Weir are co-directors, with Jack writing the script for this story about a bachelor party that takes a horrifying and wild turn. Part thriller, part character piece, always intense, Bird Eater is a film that owes its existence to the legacy of the classic Aussie film, Wake and Fright. In the following discussion, Jack and Jim talk about the influence of Wake and Fright on their film, while also touching on their desire to explore modern masculinity on screen. The pair also talk about the troubles they faced in making the film, and the genuine possibility that might have been, not have been able to finish the production on it. There's a truly unsettling nature to Bird Eater, yet it's delivered in a masterfully captivating manner. Mark my word, you will be hearing a lot about these two filmmakers going forward. Bird Eater screens at the Melbourne International Film Festival on August 12th, 14th and 16th. And if you're looking for tickets for the 12th and the 14th, well, unfortunately, you're going to have to go on the wait list. Those screenings have already sold out. So pick up a ticket to the 16th if you're in Melbourne and eager to see it. If not, and you're in Western Australia, you can head down to Cinefest Oz on Saturday the 2nd of September where it will be screening at the festival. Here is a slice of the trailer for Bird Eater before Jack and Jim talk about the film. Jim starts the conversation by talking about the film's recent screening at the Sydney Film Festival. You've been skydiving, Louis. I've been skydiving in Mexico. Honey! It was fun, but I didn't know that the planes that they take you up in, they don't have any seatbelts. So you can go up in them, but you, you can't come back down. So when you're up there at 15,000 feet, it's the only way you're going out. Kicking, screaming, shitting, spewing, coming. They'll fucking choke you cold and throw you overboard. It's too late. Tonight we own you. The boys own you. And the harder you kick, the worse it's all going to go down. For you, how's the, the festival run been so far? It's been good. Yes, yeah, Sydney was a bit of a um, bit of a whirlwind. It was weird going from talking about this movie for three years, but none of my family or friends had seen it, to overnight every single person I know had seen it. So that was kind of hard to adjust to. A lot of kind of had hundreds of like very similar conversations. 
but it was good. And it was great to meet some uh, filmmakers as well. We became close with a few a few filmmaking teams who had um, films at Sydney. Right. Let's jump into talking about your great film. Let's talk about The Elephant in the Room, which is the very first thing that would be a huge influence on both yourselves as filmmakers, but also the film itself. And there's even a nice nod with the, the one sheet in there. But Wake and Fright, can you talk about the impact of that film on you both growing up as filmmakers and how it plays into the tone and vibe of Bird Eater? How was it an influence for this film? Yeah, well, we came across um, Waking Fright when we were at film school together. It was kind of one of our mandatory watches and we and we had never seen it. We'd never, it was sort of a shared first experience and we were, we were definitely rattled by it. There was something that appealed to us about the uh, kind of the legacy of it as a lost film, but the way that it sort of really bluntly spoke to a certain type of masculinity in Australia felt very ahead of its time, that it was kind of reimagining the larrikin figure as as a very menacing character in genre films and i think we kind of parked the idea we went we were we we, we took it we sort of absorbed it and we had a lot to say about it waking fright's influence on bird eater just speaks to how much of an effect it's had on our masculine image in cinema because we actually didn't start the film thinking about waking fright we started the film as a much more focused relationship drama we were really just thinking about two people to begin with and then the bucks party setting felt like a natural mechanism to bring other people into the situation make it a kind of a party premise Uh, but as soon as we did that we kind of realized that the baggage that we were just sort of walking straight into the exact same territory that waking fright has had such a dominant kind of presence in so we had to we we're very glad to, but we had to kind of embrace that influence and really lean into a lot of the conversations that film was having about men. But we think that there's an element of Wake and Fright and still in Australian genre films that feels like there's a safe distance from Australian metropolitan areas. And I mean, we've done something similar where, you know, we're not, we're not, the majority of our film is not set in, you know, Sydney, but um, there was something about the idea of, young men from Sydney going, you know, an hour or two's drive out of the city and then kind of being overwhelmed by this, like the spectre of the Australian American or the spectre of the sort of characters that you see in Waking Fright and questioning where that character comes from or where, what is that innate mask that young Australian white men put on when they indulge in drinking or they indulge in festivities and I think that that was something that we were really interested in exploring and something that we want to keep exploring because it's a strange I think it's a strange phenomenon it's very very questionable I find it interesting the uh, search for what a modern man is in Australian film has been something that a lot of filmmakers especially emerging filmmakers like yourselves have explored uh, in recent years but also in short films like Mud Crab and Mate as well which are both films that look at that tussle between men in different environments. One is about father-son, another is about, you know, small town. And here we're talking about a masculine environment, which is usually excluded from having any kind of female or women presence at all. And that is a distinct difference between these kinds of stories that, you know, there is this kind of almost modern idea of bringing the women along on the Bucks Night Party. Um, where did that concept come from? Well, like you're saying, it's, the idea of bringing women to the party 
um, in a way was bringing, it was almost like bringing a camera to the party in film or like the men are aware that they suddenly have an audience and just by that very fact, they begin to sort of behave reflexively. They begin to be self-conscious about the mode that they're switching into. Because I think we're at a real crisis point right now in in those films you mentioned as well, in, in, in Mate and Mud Crab, where this idea of the masculine identity of Australia is at a crisis point with modern gendered politics where it's no longer compatible and it is no longer healthy. Um, but that's what colonial Australia has built so much of its personality around. So I think there's a real question now as to how the Australian male, the white Australian male, will reform themselves. And I think there's a lot of panic in that as well. That's something that we liked. We like the idea of panic that these men are expecting to be able to sort of get away and behave without any sort of responsibility or behave in the ways that they, for some reason, want to behave without being reprimanded by it. But, 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 but the fact of bringing like that contemporary gender politics to the Bucks party makes him freak out like with i think that's why we like charlie quite a lot as well as a character because we see him as someone who's just constantly melting down because he's not he hasn't come to a bucks party expecting to be challenged in the way that he has been and i think there's a lot of like unintentional humor there or intentional and unintentional but i know that um jack bannister who played charlie was not going in to the to the to the shoot expecting um us to find his character um so funny in particular me and jim i mean we and jim find charlie to be just very comic to watch not necessarily like a comic character but very very funny to watch and i think that took jack quite a while to sort of calibrate but i think it's the fact that he um he takes it so seriously that we find so funny like he, he takes these sort of archaic ideas of gender politics so seriously that's where some of the dark comedy comes in. And Jim, for yourself, anything to add there? Yeah, I think we were um, particularly interested in in men who put on a mask in their relationships and then having this Bucks party setting with their partners present, specifically with Louis and Charlie, watching them kind of shift between modes with their girlfriend or fiancé and then with the boys. That's why one of our favourite scenes is Charlie... Um, being walked in on when he takes the ketamine pill and immediately switching masks and pretending that he's just looking after Murph. He hasn't taken anything. Yeah, seeing that in real time, the switch. Kind of switch straight into gaslighting is is really terrifying as well. Um, but one of the things which I note is that, like, for a lot of people, it uh, doesn't matter if you're man, woman, or non-binary, you know, seeing a group of men is an anxiety-provoking thing, regardless of whether, you know, it's a harmless situation or something like this, which is supposed to be, on paper at least, a fun event. Can you talk about exploring that kind of anxiety of just seeing a group of men together doing things? That, yeah, I mean, that's something, again, that's it's such a potent, such a potent thing to use on screen and for an ensemble as well, just that the the idea of a ratio of there's like a larger group of young, of, of men um, than otherwise. It's definitely partly based on an experience I had. I went to a Sydney private school and we had a um, rugby initiation night for the old boys. And that's probably one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life because there were, you know, it was a group of 30 to 40 men, sort of 19 to 24 year olds. And it was just the journey 
from the train station to the pub we were going to where it was just this this group of men that were anticipating a really big night like a few of them already been pre-drinking but we knew that the night was going to be about very heavy drinking like no holds barred behavior there was so many men in the group had partners but they were behaving already in a way that they wouldn't have been doing if they were around their partner and i felt so upset in that energy because because i could feel you know just moving from the train like to the pub that people were avoiding us because there's just this undercurrent of of violence there's this undercurrent of aggression in that group there's an expectation that something is going to happen whether or not it happens and i think that's something that lends itself to the Bucks Party premise. There's this expectation that something will happen. Somebody will do something really upsetting or someone is going to be put in a very uncomfortable position or somebody is going to spew or somebody is going to overdose. Like there's just the weight of that expectation, I think, drives men into a kind of a frenzy state. But also, and I think it's like the Australian genre and Australian exploitation films leads an audience to expect the worst in these sort of premises as well so there's a lot of maneuvering there you can do when you are dancing around genres the way we do in that we can kind of use those audience expectations and hopefully surprise them or hopefully pivot them in new directions Um, but there's so much groundwork there already done by like what what men usually do in genre films in australian cinema the audience has a lot of baggage in the cinema, I think, watching that. Yeah, it's the same with expectations around genre. If you have a group of characters going to an isolated property, we've seen enough movies to know that something really bad is going to happen when they're alone out there. In most movies, it would be some kind of supernatural or like slasher element. There would be violence, but we wanted to subvert that with the direction our movie goes. But I think, yeah, constantly being aware of expectations is some that we something that we talked about kind of at every point in the story like what's the audience what would most movies do next and let's pivot then what i also love is the the comparison between smart and unsmart characters where one character say for example louis carries a level of self-awareness of how intelligent he thinks he actually is and then you have somebody like dylan who thinks that he's smarter than he actually is. But, you know, and our initial impression of him is like, this guy is going to be the vessel for whatever antagonism or violence or, or, you know, potential threat that might occur. But we actually get a little bit of empathy as we experience time with him as it goes along. And it's balancing that empathy of understanding these aren't, these are imperfect people. But I'm curious if you can talk about crafting smart characters and unsmart characters or people who think they're actually more intelligent than they really are well yeah that's that 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 was totally our our plan with dylan was to kind of introduce him in a way that an audience would really quickly think they have a read on how he's going to fit in to the rest of the film but then countering exactly what you're saying that kind of the subterfusion of louis behavior or that kind of the distance that we have from him where we understand he may be doing things quite poorly, but we know that there's a performance there. Whereas we, we can see with Dylan, there's a, there's a certain honesty in his behavior that whether or not we agree with his actions, I think an audience 
Um, and that has been a fairly unanimous experience that audiences have grown closer to Dylan than they expected because I think because of the honesty or, or the, the lack of mask that Dylan has lets people in more than Louis. But, but, he, but our plan with, with him was to, to, to really lead an audience to expect a fairly straightforward antagonism from him and then hopefully sort of pivot him into something else in the second half and allow Louis to sort of switch places there. Um, but but we, we, we kind of view a lot of our characters as pretty, as pretty stupid. Not stupid in the sense that, like, like we like, um, like, really poor grammar structure for dialogue. We just think that there's really funny, <laughs> there's, like, really funny deliveries that can come from that. But we just think it lends a level of authenticity to these characters as well. Um, it means that when people are doing things that are really awful or, or, or we're watching Louis kind of construct something that um, might seem like a really twisted Machiavellian idea of he's, try, he's trying to architect this entire night, but when he kind of stumbles over his words, I think that lets an audience see the, the kind of the cogs turning in his head mm-hmm. and it sort of sees him trying to build that, those train tracks in front of him as the, the plot is going along, and I think that lets us humanise with him a little bit. I th- yeah, and I think it's an intelligent thing. I think you, I think... We relate it to like intelligence, the way people construct plans as they're happening. But I think we like to kind of always make those plans a little bit messier, even even if they're strictly antagonistic, just because, yeah, I think it lets an audience in a bit further. Do you want to talk about that at all, Jim? Yeah, I think, I think it's less about intelligence and it's more to do with crafting characters who have these extreme blind spots or extreme tunnel vision and then pushing them into situations where you get a really clear sense of what those blind spots are, which is kind of a stupidity, but usually it's balanced by them having a really specific point of view or a really specific goal in mind for the night. So I think it's Dylan, it's less, you know, he's emotionally unintelligent and doesn't understand doesn't understand relationships doesn't understand louis and irene and more that the bucks night is for him and he wants to have the best night possible it's more that kind of tunnel vision are you both when you you've got your script are you really sticklers for actors sticking to the written word on the page or is there a space of freedom that they can extend or expand on what you've written yeah it depends on the actor they're all quite different Especially, you know, we only had seven people, but they, everyone seemed to have a fairly different approach to the scripted material. Some people were coming right out of the gate and had a very, very loose uh, approach to um, the written the written words. And some who were really, really wanted to get one or two in the bag that were very closely on script, and then would kind there'd be a kind of inherent mission from that point to experiment. I think that was generally our plan was to sort of that's sort of what we like to do. And that was, and I was a plan sort of across the board, which was that, especially on a low budget, you have to plan to an extent. You sort of know what you need. You, you know what needs to be said in the scene. And you just want to sort of make sure you've got it. And you think you want to make sure you've shot the scene the way you think you need it. But very quickly it becomes apparent um, if experimentation is needed. And I think different characters, very different characters demand at different levels of, improvisation as well i mean 
somebody like Irene, where like all of her dialogue is so measured and so calculated and needs to be so specific that every word is loaded and that the audience is like leaning forward. That that with Shabana that came down to yeah, literally like word choices, single single words that didn't feel right to her or single words that we really wanted to keep because we felt like they were loaded. Versus somebody like Dylan who's you know just constantly rambling, and you're using his kind of diegetic or, or, or his kind of um, his outtakes, you know, just in the background speaker for like a chaotic scene at the end or something. Ben was often just like reeling off just we'd just like set up a microphone and he'd just like talk for <laughs> talk for a while we just we'd just use it in whatever way we wanted so it was a real mix it was actually it was quite hard for Alfie because um we pushed the grammatical like the grammatical mistakes it wasn't gr- grammar mistakes he would use turn of phrases in weird ways as smurf and that was written at Alfie quite likes to improvise, and so he would improvise on the already improvised turns of phrases, and they would become almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he actually had quite a short lead. Yeah, it was largely just how much time we had in a day. If we had a bunch of time to shoot a scene, would always improv towards some of our later takes. We love taking actors away in between takes and giving them like a secret new line to throw the other actor off. Yeah, cause by, we, we had two big delays before we started shooting because of COVID. So by the time we got to set, like the actors knew, knew the script so well. And it's, that can be really dangerous when an actor thinks they can nail a scene. It can become, or too, too measured, there's not enough room for for sparks or something interesting to happen because you know the the scene is so cemented in their mind so when we had when we had scenes like that whether it was like a new line or a new way of playing it or a new type of blocking would try to bring something new to it so how long did you shoot for and what did you shoot on as well because the visual style of the film is you know adds to obviously how intense and how uh, captivating and engaging it is. So the visual style is is really powerful. Um, but yeah, how long did you shoot for and what did you shoot on? We shot for four weeks initially, mostly on location near Wiseman's Ferry, which is a couple of hours out of Sydney. We, we were filming at the start of like a big weather event uh, where there was a bunch of rain in the area. And we were filming at a property that was, you literally had to cross a stream to get to the house. So as we were shooting, the stream turned into kind of knee deep and then waist deep. It eventually became like a raging river. One day we had to have an emergency evacuation um, and we couldn't shoot there for the rest of the four weeks. So at that point we realized there was no way we were going to finish in four weeks. One of our actors left as well, actually. So there was a different, there was a different actor playing Dylan originally. And then we shot what we could with, uh, you know, smaller scenes. Um, a lot of those uh, scenes when they're getting firewood, we were able to shoot, but we couldn't shoot any ensemble scenes. And then we had to kind of wrap. We had to refinance the film from scratch. We had zero money. And then five months later, we got another two weeks to shoot. We got a, a new actor to play Dylan. We filmed all of our ensemble scenes, all of the scenes that had Dylan in it. Yeah, so it was kind of like six, six and a half weeks total. We shot on a um, Aria Mira, which was VP uh, Rogers' camera, which he bought for the shoot. But he, uh, it actually bricked a week in as well. 
so we had to get a replacement for that. But we also also mentioning worth mentioning that that first block when we were shooting what we could when we were still at Wiseman's Ferry, we were just shooting that in the in the property of the hotel that actors and car and crew were staying at. That's um, yeah. we just we just went behind the accommodation because there was no we were just rapidly running out of options and so we had to kind of hide from the golf carts that were like the hotel <laughs> like the accommodation uh, staff um just because i didn't know didn't think they knew that what we were doing but it really came down to that level of like where where can we shoot and then there were days where we were just like running out of scenes that we could shoot because we didn't have dylan and dylan was in so many scenes so we'll just film like cars driving in the rain, not knowing what would need for. But they ended up becoming like so useful in the edit. Crucial. When we had this emergency evacuation and we lost an actor and we ran out of money, it was kind of all happening at once. We were, uh, we like discussed just like throwing in the towel, making some kind of proof of concept and trying to get financing for like a new film. Just Bird Eat is not happening. It's a cursed production. We move on. But then eventually we were uh, yeah, committed to the idea that we'd be able to refinance the film. And I think we were, we were two weeks out from our second shooting block, still with uh, literally zero dollars in the bank when an angel investor came in and bankrolled the, the shoot block. So we were really, really, really lucky. Almost wasn't mad. None of that shows on screen the, the stress and tension. <laughs> it looks like a million bucks, so it's good. <laughs> good. good. Yeah. On the camera question, though, we should we should yeah shout out Roger as well because so yeah, Roger shot it on his Amira, but and he was oftentimes either supported by one or two very dedicated like grips, gaffers, ACs, sort of combinations, and oftentimes he was like completely on his own. So he ended up being such a crucial part of the whole production that we were always able to sort of lean on that we always had like a camera basically ready to roll whenever we needed which is an incredible resource for such a small film and we can we can only have roger to thank for that because i think if we'd had a much stricter camera package or a much stricter relationship with our dp i don't know that the film would have been made at all but i think the fact that roger was kind of always in the wings with the camera that was just like ready to shoot and we knew that he would do the work they gave us so much freedom and gave us um so much extra footage than you know we otherwise would have uh, been able to get away with so as i was saying the visual style of it is so it's so powerful and strong and relates to the text itself and the performances brilliantly it's a it is really one of the the finest australian films uh, both visually and textually that I've seen in a very long time, blown away by it. Like there's the, the praise has got to be very good. It, it, like the, the responses that I've had from other people who watch a lot of Australian films has been like, you guys need to watch Bird Eater. You've got to watch it. It's just like stunning. W- what does that mean to you guys as filmmakers, emerging filmmakers to have that kind of immediate response where it's like, this is something you cannot miss. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I think we're we're re- we're really stoked. Yeah, we're really glad it's being like received in the way we we wanted to. We we set out with like a lot of intentions, not really sure if people were gonna get it. We're gonna like buy into the type of movie we wanted to make, but people have been. So yeah, we we always 
set out for Bird Eater to just be successful enough that me and Jack could make another movie. And I think hopefully, yeah, it's gotten to that stage now where we're going to be able to make another movie. So that's that's what we really, really wanted. Yeah, we were surprised. Oh, we were. We, it's it's a relief to see that people are willing to see films where that aren't super classifiable in a single genre as well. That's something that we didn't pay, we didn't face any pushback in pre-production, but there were definitely questions about you know how to categorize this film, how to sell this film, and we were lucky enough to have people that supported the idea to begin with. But it was definitely a question mark in terms of what is the audience for this film. But it's been a relief to see the way that the um, the audience has really latched on to that uncertainty of genre in a really fun way because that's something that we want to keep experimenting with because it's something that we enjoy. You know, I think that 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 uncertainty can really excite an audience like in the moment. It, it leads to a lot of people not, not having any idea where, you know, a film's going to turn. But it's also exciting to see there's a lot of other Australian films that are coming out recently that it feels like we're really part of a sort of a cohort at the moment. We're really inspired to see... Um, James Vaughan's film, Friends and Strangers, a few years ago. There were some great Australian films at Sydney this year. And, yeah, people talking about similar things and, you know, Mud Crab and, and whatnot. So it feels like there's a lot of people that are really turning a corner for Australian cinema, which is nice to see. Well, that's it. Like, that, that's, as we lead into wrapping up, the, that's one of the things which I've observed is there has been, as you're saying, this group of filmmakers, which are not just from one region. You know, there are filmmakers from Adelaide, uh, Sydney, you know, WA all over that are operating kind of on their own regard uh, and creating something that is showing this this great emergence of really impressive Australian talent coming forward. Do you engage in Australian films and discuss and talk with Australian filmmakers much? Is that something that you're passionate about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're. I mean, that's what's most exciting me about getting birded out into the world. I think is being able to connect with other. Australian filmmakers because I think there's just so much potential here in the landscape in the history in the uh in social history the national history indigenous history there's so much potential here for stories that we're not seeing on screen that I'm just desperate for people that aren't myself to to dig into places that I can't but I know there's so much that I you know that we we're looking at that we're we're, we're so hungry to depict um, because we just don't see on the screen that much. I mean, people go, people go crazy when they there's a movie that's just set in Sydney, just because they want to be able to see Sydney yeah. on a movie screen. It doesn't matter if it's like a terrible movie. It's just like that we're just not scratching that itch at the moment. So I'm just so, I'm so excited by the idea that that other people are sort of spreading into corners of this country that I can't go and but, but making stories that I want to see. So I'm excited for an international audience. I'm very interested to see how an international audience receives it. And it's nice to see that I think people are hungry overseas for Australian content. I think there's still a level of exoticism about Australia that helps us. And I'm very thankful for that. But ultimately, I'm excited to see what what these other filmmakers can do and, and the, the sort of the conversations that we can spark each other to have. Because I think that's what, what will generate interesting content is if we're all asking questions about each other's work and, and, and driving each other into sort of new, to sort of define ourselves sort of naturally without without directly challenging each other, you know, not in a, you know, not in a confrontational way, but I think there's kind of a natural division that will happen and we'll, and we'll want to define ourselves a little bit more specifically 
once these people start making second and third films that I think it will lead to really interesting places. Uh, yeah, I would echo all of that. I think, um, and also just the talent. I think me and Jack know way too many talented filmmakers who are only getting commercial work because it's so hard to get fiction stuff off the ground in this country and in New South Wales in particular. So yeah, I think we're, we're, we're really hungry to make more of our own stuff, but we also want to lift up the people around us and the talent around us so more filmmakers can be making more films. In particular, yeah, feature films. That's what me and Jack are really interested in, and that's what we don't see enough of. I'm excited to see where your career goes from here and what your catalogue of films looks like going forward and, and obviously touching base every couple of years and you know, talking about where you've both grown as filmmakers would be really exciting to see. Um, there is so much to talk about this film. I do want to point out, like, the sequence with Carolyn McQuaid is just... That's one of the most stunning scenes I've seen in years. It is, like, it's on level with, um, you know, some of the scenes in Animal Kingdom, like Ben Mendelsohn dancing to a song and stuff like that. That's the, the level of unsettling nature in that particular scene is just insane. Uh, so congratulations for creating one heck of a film uh it is something that you're going to be uh yeah talking about for a long time i imagine so congratulations to you both so thank you it's been lovely chatting but caroline should get a lot of credit for that because she she we only saw her we only she only she didn't have any rehearsals she just she was just there the night she just had to do it so special shout out to our sound designer julian oliver who also did all of the the music um and yes. weird soundscapey stuff for that sequence because i think i think all of it well not all of it but most of it go, comes down to the sound uh in terms of unsettling the final product is love this podcast support it and sponsor today simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details